If you have your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. And this morning we are considering his parable. I've been, over the past several months, considering the parable, the kingdom parables of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. And just a small disclaimer here, this, so you're forewarned, these parables have teeth. So um, please attend God's holy word now as we read it beginning in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But, when, but each of them also received a denarius. On, the receiving it, on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last work only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I want with what, um, excuse me, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. It's an incredible parable. This, this parable finds its context in in a series of misunderstandings about the kingdom of God. And um, this is indicated with the very first word in our passage here is for the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so for indicates that what he's saying now has direct bearing on what's just preceded this very passage. So uh, before we dive into this, this text, let's just set the backdrop. Let's see a little bit of the context of, of what's been happening. And what we, what we see is, again, a series of misunderstandings about the nature of God's kingdom. And it brings to the surface an unrelenting self-love and legalistic pride. To say this another way, it brings to the surface our great need for the gospel of God's grace. This first misunderstanding happens in chapter 19 and verse 13. Whenever um, little children were coming to Jesus, 
And as they run to Jesus, his disciples start to shoo them away. No child can run up to a rabbi. And Jesus tells the children, as we are all very familiar, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Again, the disciples missing the point that that these children are almost a metaphor, if you will, of how one enters into the kingdom of God with simple childlike faith. This is immediately preceded by this, um, or um, by this other event with this rich young man in verses 16 and following. This man comes up to Jesus, flaunting his, his track record of obedience, essentially saying, what more must I do to be saved? Jesus graciously shows this man he's not even come close to inheriting eternal life. If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And so we know the man then walks away very sorrowful, uh, for he has great possessions. Well, as he does, we see yet an even more interesting scenario unfold. Peter seems to be watching this man walk off into the distance. And, and as he does, you see his wheels are starting to turn. And he, he makes a very interesting comment in verse 27. See, Jesus, we have left everything and have followed you. What then will we have? So here's this reluctant rich young ruler who, who he won't leave all to follow him. And here's Peter but I have left all, so what have I got? I think it's very interesting, um, you know, if my, we have something like that happen in our household, um, there's usually not a favorable response, you know, it's kind of a rebuke, you know, you need to be more humble. Um, it's very interesting, Jesus actually affirms Peter and says, in essence, Peter, you have a lot. Uh, look at his response in verse 28, truly I say to you, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sister, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But then here's this phrase again. But the many who are first will be last, and the last first. So, Peter, you're going to have a lot, but it's not going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. Um, the kingdom of God um, works at a very different tempo than the way that we, would, that we would want. And in each of these scenarios, we see this common thread running throughout. It's this deep longing for God's approval, for some place of favor, Maybe some special treatment because of our status or accomplishments. Maybe what we've been been called to endure through this life. And we all have this longing to be first, to be favored. I think the tragedy of this deep-rooted longing in our hearts is that it works completely contrary to the grace of God offered to us in Jesus It's almost as if we are fearful that God is not as gracious as he claims to be. That really, at the end of the day, my sufferings prove that he can't be trusted. 
And so we naturally start to pine for this privileged status or position before him. And so Jesus reveals now in this kingdom parable of laborers in the vineyard that it is all by grace. And we need no other privileged status before him than that which is given to us in Jesus. And so I want to consider the parable itself. I want to show what this reveals about our hearts and then how Jesus meets this need. We begin with this parable, and the image that Jesus draws here for each of us is one that would be very common for his day. Most people in Jesus' day were common laborers. They were lower class. They were very few social elites. Working in a vineyard would be very common work. So everyone would resonate with this parable. This is something that is very commonly uh, a very common occurrence in Jesus' day. In verses 1 through 7, we meet all of our main characters. The first one that we meet is the master of the house. He has a vineyard. It's harvest time. He has to bring in his harvest. So he goes out early in the morning and starts sending out laborers into his vineyard. This brings us to our second main character, which would be the first hired laborers. What we know about them is that they agree for a day's wage, and they eagerly go out to work. And then we have this, I, I just lumped them all together, okay? The, the third main character, those hired periodically throughout the day. This master goes out five times um, throughout the period of this day, taking more people and sending them into the vineyard. And interestingly, you kind of see the problem being set up because the first were, they agreed on a day's wage, and now he's saying, I will pay you whatever is right. So, you know, familiar with the parable, you're like, okay, there's a, there's a problem ensuing here. And that problem unfolds for us in verses 8 through 16. Evening comes. It's Jewish law that payment was at sunset. And so here, he calls all of his laborers to be paid. But as we know, interestingly, he calls for those hired last to be paid first. And you know, if, if, the, if the master of the house was really wanting just to, to keep everybody happy, I think um, one commentator does a good job, I think, of pointing out he could have paid the first hired hands first and then paid everybody else, and there probably wouldn't have been any drama, right? I mean, everyone would have been happy, they would have gotten what they had been promised, and everyone else would have been thankful. But then the whole point of this parable would be missed, and it's this... Um, Grace on display for everybody. And, and how these first hired hands just cannot stand the fact that this master is so gracious. And so we see this master saying, no, bring the, bring the last hired first, and I'm going to give them a full day's wage. And to be fair to the first hired hands, we don't have any inclination that they're angry at this point. Actually, to the contrary... We see them doing their own rationale. They're thinking, okay, well, maybe he's even more gracious than he's promised. Maybe if they only worked an hour and got a full day's wage, we will get more. But then, as we know, they come and they receive their denarius and they begin to grumble. They're angry. 
Each hour that these men have worked in the vineyard, they have grown that much more superior to the other laborers that they've been working side by side with. For 12 long hours in the scorching heat, the superiority complex has begun to just fester and bubble under the surface until right here at the end, they get what they were promised and they can't take it anymore. Well, the master answers their grumbles in verses 13 through 16. Again, he is, in fact, giving them exactly what he's promised to them. He replies to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you, not, or do you begrudge my generosity? Literally, is your eye bad because I am good? Such a cutting parable. Such an amazing passage. And it's, it's, um, it's very troubling how um, it sets... With, un, with unmistakable clarity, the dynamics that so commonly work in our heart on a day-to-day basis. In fact, um, we can be tempted to believe the longer we walk with Jesus, the easier this thing is going to get. But then as you start to see the dynamic of this parable, it was the opposite, wasn't it? It was the longer that these laborers worked in the vineyard, that this, that the, this deep-seated, rooted, I am entitled to better had time to grow. We actually have more opportunity for sin the longer we walk with Jesus. And so passages like this really, I think, cut us to the quick and powerfully bear witness to the fact that what Jesus testifies about himself at the end of John chapter 2, he needs no one to bear witness about man. He knows exactly what is in our hearts. And so... This passage is really a large invitation for each of us this morning. It's an invitation for me and for you to examine our own hearts and to see, do we see something very similar at work within us this morning? Generally, this this legalistic entitlement attitude has its roots in fear and pride. And I would like to de- I'd like to describe this a little bit to you. I think this is this is exactly where the Lord took me as I was working through this passage. I don't want you to to hear me as saying I'm someone talking to you guys. I am under this as well. Um, this legalism is driven by fear, and again, it is a fear that Jesus is not as good as He promises to be. The gospel, and we even have ways to say this in respectable ways. The gospel simply too good to be true, and there's truth in that. Um, the gospel is too good to be true. And I, in all of our life, we struggle to believe that the gospel is true. But if we're not careful, there can be a, a slave-like fear that's deeply rooted in our hearts that leads us to the conclusion that as we think about this past year of all the, the difficulties and sufferings that COVID has presented, for example, perhaps you've lost loved ones. 
Perhaps there have been part of this pandemic that really got personal at one point. It's in those moments that this fear can lead you to the the faulty conclusion that, you know, maybe he can't be trusted. And so as a consequence, in fear, we 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 start working hard. We desperately pine after some sway, some leverage in the sight of God. We try to earn our right, even though we might not admit it outright, we try to earn our right to this table. When we do this, again, the tragedy here is that you're not in a position where you can embrace the love of your Father. In fact, this fear brings you to a place where you you cheapen the relationship that God would have with you, His child, to a work for wages relationship. I'll earn my way. I'll make sure I deserve, I get what I deserve. And we see this in, in Peter's logic again. See, we, we've left everything, Jesus. What do we get? And so we promote this air of superiority with this, um, with this root of, um, in response to our fears and our doubts within our own hearts. But this might not only be rooted in fear, as I was saying earlier, it can also be a deep-seated pride. Um, This can be especially true as our list of sufferings gets longer, right? Um, Sicknesses, cancer, loss of a job, rejection. Maybe you've been called to give up much in your lifetime to follow. And as as this list continues to grow, we are increasingly gripped with this belief that God is somehow indebted to us. As a result of all of our good, as a result, all of our good deeds, all of our services, all of our performance, on the surface looks much like, wow, he must really love Jesus. But if you got down on a heart level, it's really a testimony of our own self-love and our willingness to even use God to serve ourselves. And this is so tragic because not only are you blinded by this pride that you see how the Father loves you relentlessly in Jesus, but it also blinds you to the true needs and God's grace at work in the hearts of others. Um, Just like whenever the, the master calls in his hired hands and starts paying them their wages, oh, we can be very much just like that first that first hired um, wave and grumble. Grumble at his grace at work in the lives of other people. Think of Jonah, for example. Unbelievable. Go and preach the gospel to the Ninevites. He goes the other direction. Finally humbled and brought to the Ninevites and in spite, preaches the preaches fire and brimstone to the Ninevites. And they repent. There's revival. And Jonah is angry. And he says, it is better for me to die than to live. Is this not what I told you when I was yet in my own country? I know that you're a God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and kindness. Now take my life from me. It's easy for me to say, Jonah, come on, man. 
But whenever I stop and I sit under this, is there some of that at work in me? And so this par- in this parable, Jesus lovingly focuses our attention on really this prison of fear and pride. And what is the remedy? Well, the gospel is the only way, as we know, to freedom from the tyranny of, this own, of our own self-love. And what we need more than anything this morning is not just to run away from this mirror and to see, yeah, that we don't need to try to deny what's really working in our hearts. We need to see Jesus. And in particular, what I'd like to show you is what he says about himself, how he, um, what he accomplishes for us, and how he meets our need. And first, in looking at who he is, it is certainly noteworthy for each of us this morning to stop and realize that the very one that begins this parable and ends this parable with the first will be last and the last will be first is none other than Jesus himself. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the first in every way. He is the preeminent one. He's the image of the invisible God. And what does He accomplish for you? Jesus, who was in the very beginning with the Father, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, was and deserved to be first, but He willingly became last for you and for me. Contrary to the world's definition of first, Jesus redefines what it means to be first in the Gospel. Even later in, this, in Matthew's own chapter, chapter 20, We read the following in verse 28. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Beloved, can you see that this principle is so much more than a principle? The first will be last and the last first. It is a gospel reality, and it's a gospel reality that Jesus willingly embodies for you and for me. He willingly gave His life as a ransom for many. This is what Jesus, this is who Jesus is. This is what He willingly accomplishes for you and for me. And how does He meet our need? 
Well, because Jesus is the first who was willingly made last, because he humbled himself to the lowest place imaginable and died for our sins, he now stands as our righteousness before the Father and continues to serve his bride. What does this mean for you? This means that you can come honestly to him this morning. You can come to him in your fear and in your pride, and you can hear him announce over you that you can stop looking for leverage before the Father. By grace through faith, you have his righteousness. You have already been made perfect in him. And so, Jesus bids us this morning to lay down our fear, to lay down our pride, to find our satisfaction in Jesus. And as we do so, we find, to our great surprise, that we stop defending ourselves and we start to see that in Him we have everything. It sends us out into our communities, into the world, with the same invitation to come. Let me tell you about the one who calmed my fear. Just this morning, my, talking about this with my children, they reminded me of the hymn, and I think I have the verses right. I know no other argument. I, I know no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, our righteousness. We thank you for your gospel invitation to come and to feast upon you. We thank you that because of your deep, deep love, we can be honest with ourselves and honest with you about where we are, who we are, where we've run, and why we went there. And I pray, Father, that as we come to you and as we feast upon you by faith, I pray, Father, that you would calm our fears, that you would quiet our pride, that you would help us by your grace to lay these aside, and to look to Jesus, the author and the foundation of our faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.